About half of Canada's landmass is permafrost, and some fear it's a ticking time bomb for climate change. With us for more, in Pasadena, California, Kimberly Miner, climate scientist at the NASA Jet Propulsion Lab working on the Arctic Methane Project. She's also a professor at the University of Maine. In Woods Hole, Massachusetts, that's near Cape Cod, John Holdren, former science advisor to President Barack Obama and research professor at Harvard University's Kennedy School of Government. And in our nation's capital, Antoni Levkovich, professor of geography, environment, and geomatics at the University of Ottawa. And as I thank the three of you for joining us here on TVO tonight, let me just set up our discussion with a bit of a fact file here. The Arctic is warming three times faster than the planet as a whole. Permafrost covers a quarter of the Northern Hemisphere's land and stores around 1.5 trillion metric tons of organic carbon. That's twice as much as Earth's atmosphere currently holds. And most of this carbon is the remains of ancient life encased in frozen soil for up to hundreds of thousands of years. Okay, that's a bit of background. Let's get started here with a better understanding of what that represents in terms of threats. Kimberly, you want to start us off? How would you describe the threat all of that represents? So I think we've got a variety of different threats that we are looking at with the permafrost. So as you mentioned, there is the potential for an output of carbon, um, both in the form of methane and CO2, and that could severely punctuate the warming that we're already seeing in the atmosphere if it were to be released. But then you also have threats from infrastructure destruction because the ground below the infrastructure in much of Canada and much of the northern hemisphere has the potential to thaw away. And then in a recent paper that we completed, we also looked at nuclear threats, potential microbial threats, and then any other kind of chemical that's been stored in the northern hemisphere permafrost, which is a considerable amount. John Holdren, what would you characterize the threat as? Well, as you noted, Steve, some have characterized permafrost as a time bomb. I think it's more like a wildfire that's already doing damage. Uh, we know for sure that it's going to grow. And what we are unable to determine exactly is how fast and how much it's going to grow. But the dangers, uh, as Kimberly has already pointed out, are, are multiple, and many of them are already occurring. The thawing permafrost is causing uh, subsidence of buildings, damage to pipelines and roads, uh, increased coastal erosion, uh, forcing some uh, indigenous villages actually to need to move and so on. So it's uh, it's already happening. And the real question is how much bigger will it get and how fast? And Tony, what would you add to that? Well, I think uh, the colleagues have already said it very well, but um, my typical analogy of permafrost thaw and the impacts of climate change causing that thaw is as a, a freight train. It's actually quite difficult to get permafrost to move in any given direction. There's a lot of heat that you need to get into the ground uh, to change the state of permafrost. But once it gets going, it's very difficult to stop as well. And uh, certainly the amount of carbon in permafrost, as Kimberly mentioned, and the potential for it to be released into the atmosphere is a serious problem, I think, for all everybody in the world. Um, and then locally, uh, for Northerners, as uh, John mentioned, we've got the problems of infrastructure, collapse and changes. And then for the rest of 
Canada or in the US, we have the issue of what the cost might be to maintain that infrastructure during a thawing phase. And that comes back to taxpayers. So we have the local issue, we have the global issue, and we have the kind of the national issues and all of those apply to the future. John, just before we get to those questions, uh, I'd like some better understanding of why there is, in fact, so much carbon trapped in the permafrost. How did that happen? Well, I guess I'll start, uh, although uh, I'm sure my two colleagues in this panel know even, uh, even more about it. But uh, what has happened is over the millennia, we have had cycles of glaciation and then interglacial warmer periods. And what has happened is in the warmer periods, uh, we have a lot of uh, plant growth. Uh, some of that plant growth ends up sequestered in the soil. And before it can all be uh, metabolized by bacteria and released as carbon dioxide or methane to the atmosphere, uh, the uh, subsequent freezing cycle embeds it in permafrost. And this has happened uh, so often that, as uh, I think has already been noted, in some places the permafrost is hundreds, uh, hundreds of feet thick. Uh, and contains uh, an immense amount of material that has been frozen and therefore uh, protected from decomposition by bacteria. Uh, and as noted, it adds up to about twice as much carbon stored in the permafrost as currently exists in the atmosphere. That means if any substantial fraction of that carbon is released as CO2 uh, and methane, it's going to significantly impact the global carbon balance and reduce the chances uh, that society's emissions reductions uh, could actually constrain the increase in global surface temperature to, let us say, uh, two degrees Celsius, 3.6 degrees Fahrenheit, uh, or two and a half. Uh, I personally think that one and a half, which is one of the aspirational goals of the international community is almost certainly already out of reach. But the permafrost could place two degrees or even two and a half degrees out of reach, uh, depending on how much comes out, how fast. Hmm. And Tony, when did science first come to realize that this was an important problem? Well, relatively recently. And I think that's always our worry is that we, we keep learning more and um, almost never have um, steps forward that we think are really very good steps. And this is a case in point. So the first publication that really put together all of the information about soil carbon in permafrost was in 2009. And it came out from hundreds of soil pits that have been dug around uh, around the, the, the north of, of uh, the around the Arctic over the previous many decades in Russia, in Alaska, in Canada, and elsewhere. And this also drew out from the International Polar Year, which really brought together scientists from around the North in, in lots of different fields, not just permafrost. And all of this came together in a publication where basically it was sort of, let's total this all up. Let's use what we know to try and create a synthesis. And the synthesis came back with actually very similar numbers to the numbers that we now have even uh, 10, 12 years later. That as the numbers that you mentioned earlier on, sort of one and a half trillion tons of, of carbon uh, stored in permafrost at various depths. So some of it will be would be released relatively quickly as permafrost thaws. Others may other parts might take much longer. But really, Kimberley's the expert on uh, on methane release in particular. 
which is why I'm going to go to her right now. Thawing permafrost also releases methane. And how big a concern for you is that release of methane? So I think both of my colleagues have really hit on this question. Um, the release of methane has the potential to increase the amount of warming in the atmosphere in a really, really punctuated way because it has a little bit more warming power than CO2. And so basically, as the potential for this degradation happens in the permafrost with warming, we go from a frozen state of permafrost where we're, we've got kind of a... a static amount of carbon into a very mobilized carbon um, as warming happens. So the microbes are basically eating the carbon and transforming it into a gas. And this isn't a process, as both of my colleagues have mentioned, that's going to be very stoppable. It, both the train example and the wildfire example were excellent ways to think about this because we don't really have the power to control the warming um, and the local permafrost environments. All right, let me follow up on that because it's not only the gases that are released, but I gather bacteria and viruses are in there as well. They could also be released. How does that factor, Kimberly, into this story? So the interesting and maybe a little bit nervous-making thing about the bacteria and the viruses is that uh, we have the potential to see bacteria and viruses that's up, that are up to a million years old. And they evolved long before we did. And they co-evolved with an atmosphere and with an ecosystem that is now extinct. And so we really have no idea how some of these microbes could interact with our modern ecosystem and with um, ourselves as organisms. And then we do know about some of the more recent threats that are stored in the permafrost, things like anthrax and even potentially smallpox. And we're not sure that any of these could really get out into the ecosystem and make it into the human population. But it's definitely something that we're on catch-up mode on. We're trying to get all the information we can just as fast as we can so that we don't see any deleterious side effects. Yeah, because I suspect people have had enough of viruses these days, don't you? We don't need any more? Yeah, exactly. So we're trying to get ahead of this. Gotcha. Uh, and Tony, tell me, when was the first time that you traveled to the Arctic? Um, in 1976. Yeah, 76. And how many times do you think you've been there since? Uh, pretty well every every year. Um, so, um, and in 2019, I had the chance to go back to sites where I had not been for 40 years on Banks Island. And that was really interesting to see uh, what changes had happened in the landscape over that preceding 40 years. And I knew the area very well because I'd spent three summers there, um, parts of my early youth, let's put it that way. Okay, so you're having been to this area so many times, what kinds of changes have you seen over the intervening decades? Well, what I really saw was that the surface of the land did not look the same. I mean, the hills are still there, the valleys are still there. But at the surface level, what we saw was that a landscape that had been relatively kind of uh, smooth uh, back in the 1970s was now uh, crossed by troughs, by settled areas which had settled out. And the reason for that is that in the, from 1998, and several years in the 2000s, we'd had particularly warm summers. And those warm summers had caused the top of the permafrost to thaw. And where it was ice rich, where we have what are called ice wedges, which are bodies of ice on the ground, the tops of those ice wedges had thawed and the ground had settled above them. 
And what I really learned from that or observed from that, uh, and it's been written about by others as well, is that it's not just the general trends that are worrisome about permafrost, so not just generally getting warmer, but the extremes. And that we've also seen in terms of floods and fires elsewhere, and the extremes are getting more extreme in permafrost areas. And so warmer summers are becoming still warmer, and they are impacting what was an equilibrium that has existed probably for hundreds or even thousands of years, and they're changing, uh, ir changing irreversibly the landscape. Let me beg the indulgence of your two colleagues for a second here by having you take us through a couple of pictures which will reflect that which you've just described. Here's the first one. Why don't you tell us what we're seeing in this picture here? That's uh, called a retrogressive thaw slump. Nice name. RTS is easier to say, but it's caused by material uh, detaching from the surface of the permafrost. And then where you see all of that sort of black, shiny surface in this picture, that's all ice. And so if we expose that ice, it begins to melt back. Um, and it does that every summer. And these features look like great big gravel pits and can reach uh, areas. We have some that are called mega slumps on the Peel Plateau, uh, where they're hundreds of meters across. And back in uh, the early 1980s, when I did some work on Banks Island, which is a westernmost island in the, Arctic, the Canadian Arctic archipelago, there were about 60 of those slumps that were active on Banks Island, and probably there'd been 60 or 100. So for many, many years, they live with, they kind of reactivate every year for about 10, 20, 30 years, and then eventually they stabilize. So there were 60. Well, by 2018, there were 4,000 of those slumps active on Banks Island, which just shows you the huge changes mm. that are taking place in the landscape. All right, let me ask John about a place that they call the gateway to hell. The Batagaika Crater in Siberia, Russia. It's almost a kilometer long, 86 meters deep. John, how did this happen? Well, it happened because of the thawing of particularly ice-rich permafrost. Uh, when permafrost has a very high ice content and it thaws, uh, that basically accentuates the slumping problem. And so you have a combination of slumping and landslides that can occur in this circumstance and, and produce uh, basically uh, a big crater. Uh, some of them quickly fill with water. Uh, they're called thermokarst lakes. Uh, eventually, uh, the water may go away and simply leave uh, this gigantic depression, this gigantic hole in the ground. It's just another uh, indication of the magnitude and the pace at which permafrost thaw is changing the Arctic. Um, there are many other changes in the Arctic that are very rapid and that are uh, interlocked in different ways with permafrost thaw, by the way. Wildfires in the Arctic are getting bigger and hotter. Even the tundra is burning. Uh, it used to be too moist to burn, but tundra is burning now uh, across the Arctic. And those wildfires accelerate uh, permafrost thaw. Um, you have the disappearance of the sea ice uh, in the Arctic, the retreat of the sea ice, which accentuates coastal erosion because waves can now reach the shore, uh, which didn't reach the shore before. Uh, and that is combining with permafrost thaw to accelerate coastal erosion. So we really have a multifaceted set of issues of which permafrost thaw is perhaps ultimately the most dangerous to the whole world because, as already been noted, 
the accelerating release of methane and carbon dioxide can push out of reach uh, the world's targets for stabilizing the climate. All right, let's do one more of these. And Kimberly, perhaps I'll get you to speak to this one. We've got a GIF here. In 2020, a Russian television crew flying over the Siberian tundra spotted this massive crater. It's 30 meters deep. It's 20 meters wide. Any idea what caused this to appear? Yeah, I remember when these started appearing and folks were very surprised and unclear about what was going on. Um, and what we've really discovered is that there is a potential for the erosion and breakup of carbon really throughout the permafrost so that even the deeper levels of permafrost have the potential to be transformed into their gaseous state and maybe in the form of methane. So that if methane is stored in the deeper layers of permafrost and then suddenly erupts, it can turn into a fireball or just a very quick boom. So the thought is that some of these uh, holes may have been created by methane explosions, and some of them could be an example of the dynamics that both of my colleagues have mentioned called abrupt thaw. So inclusive of thermokarst lakes and the retrogressive thaw slumps, these abrupt thaw dynamics can thaw the really, really deep, dense, old permafrost that has up to 90% ice content. And what that basically means is instead of the three meters of gradual thaw and freezing that we're used to seeing every summer in the permafrost, you're seeing up to feet of degradation and loss in one event or over a couple of years. Hmm. Let's follow that up with a quote about life in Alaska. And this is from 2018. In Bethel, Alaska, walls are splitting, houses are collapsing, and the main road looks like a kiddie roller coaster. In the coastal town of Kongaganak, sinking cemeteries prevent Alaskans from burying their dead in the ground. The village of Shishmaref, located on an island five miles from the western Alaska mainland, has eroded so much that it is contemplating total relocation. These communities are being plagued by permafrost that is thawing. Okay, Kimberly, again to you. What challenges does thawing permafrost pose to infrastructure and to communities up north? Yeah, there's a, a great diversity of challenges. And the way that I like to think about it that's kind of easy to conceptualize is it's like an ice cream cake. And so the longer you leave the ice cream cake out, the more muddled everything is going to get and the less stable it's going to get until finally it just collapses. So it's the same thing with a lot of the permafrost on the northern tundra. And that can include the permafrost that underlies runways, roads, pipelines, and homes. And that can create problems for local infrastructure, regional infrastructure, and national infrastructure, as some of these towns have one runway and some of the regions have one runway that feed the entire community. And that can be both a... Um, metaphorical feed and a direct feed where some of the food and supplies have to be flown in and that can disconnect communities functionally from the rest of the world and really cause a lot of problems for the local populations. Hmm. And Tony, let's talk oil and gas infrastructure. I gather there are hundreds of sumps that have been excavated by the oil and gas industry in the 1970s and 80s. What's happening to them? 
So uh, sumps were big holes in the ground that were created next to wells which were being drilled for oil and gas uh, through the Canadian Arctic Islands and also particularly in the Mackenzie Delta. And the idea was that uh, you would uh, create this big hole in the permafrost, put in drilling muds, which were used to prevent blowouts at wells. That's an important thing to do. You don't want a blowout taking place. Um, but these muds, some of them contain uh, toxic materials and uh, they're obviously you don't want to release them to the environment. So the notion was, let's create a big hole, put the muds in, cover it all up. The permafrost will come back, freeze everything, and we're good to go. Well, unfortunately, the permafrost has got warmer. The drilling muds are often, uh, the chemicals in them can actually move quite frequently at temperatures even below zero degrees because they're so salty. And uh, so we have problems now in some well sites where muds are leaking from these sumps, then going down slope and going into, into uh, ponds and rivers. And this is obviously a, a problem that wasn't envisaged back in the 1970s and 80s when we really didn't know very much about climate change and certainly didn't design for the future. And I think that's one of our biggest challenges even today. So we're dealing with both stuff that is already in place how are we going to deal with that? Uh, houses that are already built, but also we have to think about the future, which is how are we going to build that will be in a resilient fashion, a sustainable fashion, so that whatever we build today or next week will still be able to be there when the permafrost conditions change over the next uh, 50 years. John Holdren, I'm not particularly proud of having to ask this question, but I'm sure it's occurred to all of you at various times during your careers, so I'm going to throw it out there anyway. I can't imagine there are people either watching or listening to this right now who are thinking to themselves, yeah, this is Alaska. This is the Arctic Circle. This is Siberia. Uh, this is not Toronto, Ontario. This is not Washington, D.C. Why should we, why do we, who live in the South, need to care about this? What's the answer? Well, of course, there are multiple reasons. Uh, the, the one I always put at the top of the list is one we've uh, all here already talked about which is that what is happening in the Arctic is not staying in the Arctic. It is propagating uh, multiple forms of harm uh, over large distances into the bulk of the Northern Hemisphere, and in some cases around the whole world. For example, the accelerated melting of glaciers and the Greenland ice sheet uh, and the disintegration, uh, even faster than simple melting, is a major contribution to sea level rise. Sea level rise is happening globally and is impacting citizens uh, on coastlines all around the world. The addition of methane and carbon dioxide, as we've been discussing, to the atmosphere is accelerating climate change and accelerating all of climate change, uh, the, the wide range of impacts of climate change from wildfires to droughts to torrential downpours, to more powerful storms, to more and stronger heat waves. All of these things uh, are happening uh, under the rubric of global climate change, and that is being accelerated and may be accelerated much more by the release of carbon dioxide and methane from the permafrost. Uh, the further point that's very much worth making uh, is around solutions. Uh, the solution to the problem of rapid climate change in the Arctic and all of its impacts in the region and around the world has to be, above all, acceleration of the effort to reduce the emissions of heat-trapping gases, principally carbon dioxide and methane, 
from the combustion of fossil fuels, coal, oil, and natural gas, and from land use change all around the world. The whole world needs to participate in an accelerated effort to reduce the fundamental drivers of global climate change. Uh, in the region, of course, there are all the impacts that have already been discussed, and any sense of affinity, any sense of common humanity with the people who have to live under these accelerating changes in the Arctic would also dictate uh, that the world pay attention and that the world do its part to uh, diminish the fundamental driving force that is uh, causing all these problems. Uh, we also need to assist and work with the peoples of the Arctic to adapt to the changes in climate that are occurring there as best they can to reduce the amount of harm that results from thawing permafrost, from vanishing sea ice, from increased wildfires. Uh, adaptation is, uh, has been the, the, uh, the, the weak stepchild compared to emissions reductions worldwide, but in fact, adaptation for all of us is going to be extremely important because no matter what we do in emissions reductions, we cannot stop those emissions overnight. In which case, Kimberly, how confident are you that if we can get a handle on climate change in general, this problem will resolve itself? I think that we've got a little bit of a lag going on around getting a handle on climate change in general and then what's going to happen them poles. So this warming trend has been going for many, many years, many uh, decades, and it's going to be very hard to suddenly stop it. We would need a, a really extreme cooling event that is going to be very hard to do with the amount of carbon that's currently in the atmosphere. So I believe that if we're able to get a hold on climate emissions and start to downscale both the emissions and then hopefully the resultant temperature, that we could eventually return to a steady state of cold, frozen climates in the far north and in the far south. But I think it's going to take a lot of time and we might see pretty serious thawing and melting before that happens. And Tony, uh, you know, we've covered the climate change story, as have, of course, many media, um, quite a bit. And I must confess, I think this may be the first time that we have covered this angle on it. And uh, I, I can imagine, again, many people watching this and saying, hmm, I, I have not heard about this angle on the climate change story before. Why do you think that is? Um, well, I can't speak for why why it hasn't been covered, but perhaps it's it's linked to the fact that it does appear to be long, you know, far away. Um, somebody in Toronto probably doesn't really think about the Arctic very much, and I, I can understand that. It's it's like an, it's like almost like another planet. But what's happening in the Arctic, as Kimberly just said, is going to affect the globe. And um, whereas uh, we have really only grasped. I think what's the impact of the potential emissions of carbon just in the last decade. As I said earlier on, you know, the first publication really where everything was added up was just 2009. And since then, although we've added details and better models and all of these things, really the numbers more or less keep coming back the same way. That if we, uh, if we don't do very much, if we don't meet current uh, goals of one and a half degrees, then we're going to see some serious impacts of, of uh, carbon release from permafrost areas. And it's difficult to control. It cannot be controlled, as John just said earlier, within the permafrost areas themselves. It has to be controlled everywhere else. 
Um, and we know what to do. That's the, that's the good news. The good news is we know what to do. The thing is, it can't be done just in the Arctic. We have to reduce globally anthropogenic emissions. Uh, just in our last couple of minutes here, John, I did want to ask you about when you presented this information to the Obama administration, how seized of the urgency of the problem did they seem to be at the time? Well, of course, uh, I, I was the science advisor to President Obama, and uh, and President Obama was very much seized uh, by this uh, uh, growing understanding of the threats uh, emanating from uh, and acting on the Arctic as well as the rest of the world. Uh, he often mentioned in remarks made to his cabinet and remarks made publicly uh, of how alarmed he had become at the reports I was giving him about the science of climate change, uh, including the science of climate change in the Arctic. Um, and President Obama, by the way, was the first sitting president to set foot in the Arctic uh, in September of 2015. Uh, the uh, major conference of world uh, leaders, uh, world uh, foreign ministers and secretaries of state that was held in Anchorage in 2015 was in some sense uh, a landmark in terms of political recognition of the importance of the Arctic. We had foreign ministers, I think, from 21 or 22 countries, uh, and uh, John Kerry presided, then the secretary of state, uh, in the United States, President Obama attended and spoke, and then he went north from Anchorage into the Arctic itself. Uh, he was very seized, uh, and he made sure that the people around him, including all of his cabinet secretaries, were seized with the importance of this issue. Uh, unfortunately, we suffered uh, a four-year lapse in attention to the Arctic and attention to climate change under President Trump, uh, but uh, with uh, President Biden uh, having appointed a very strong team on climate and, in fact, a very strong team on the Arctic. I think the United States is back in the game and back at the table. Uh, but again, as uh, both Kimberly and, uh, and Tony have pointed out, it's going to take everybody. And Kimberly, just finally, for those who think here is yet another reason for me to be depressed about the future of the world or perhaps the lack thereof, what's the response to that person? So I actually speak to a lot of youth groups and a lot of children's groups who are interested in climate change and concerned about climate change. And I really do think that there is an outpouring of support, attention, and curiosity or concern around climate change. So I think we're heading in a really great direction with a lot of people caring a lot about what's going on. And that's where we're really going to see the movement is from the grassroots, really starting to talk to the politicians about what's important and how they want to envision the future. And that's across sectors, across countries, you're seeing a really great diversity of young people reaching out and sharing their dreams of what the world could look like uh, without climate change or in spite of climate change. So unlike uh, a movie that's playing right now on Netflix that's extremely popular, maybe we should look up as opposed to don't look up. Kimberly Miner, John Holdren, and Tony Levkovich, it's awfully good of all three of you to join us on TVO tonight and help us out with this. Thanks so much. Happy to do it. Thank you. Thanks. The Agenda with Steve Pakin is made possible through generous philanthropic contributions from viewers like you. Thank you for supporting TVO's journalism.